Hey guys, welcome back to the new Sprint Commando. I'm your host, Ed Moore. Teal Productions is on Blue Sky and Twitter. News P Commandos on Twitter, should you want to get in touch either of those ways. Teal Productions has a Facebook page. The email address is imindieman at gmail.com. Indie is I-N-D-I-E. Teal, uh, by the way, is spelled like the color, T-E-A-L. And the website, Comic Book Noise slash T-N-C, the letters. Tango November Charlie for phonetic. I'm looking at Star Slayer, the log of the Jolly Roger, issue number five from Pacific Comics. Taking a quick step back, I'll be looking at the books that Pacific Comics put out this episode in August of 1982. All two books. So, uh, the aforementioned Star Slayer, as I said, looking at the cover here. It's a picture of an uh, illustration of Torn McQuillan and Tamara running through what looks to be some sort of snowy vista. There's a cave off here to the side. They're being shot at. Um, Tamara is brandishing her laser gun special futuristic thing. It's a special thing. I forget what she calls it. And Torin is wielding his electrified uh, cutlass. They're looking back over their shoulder as if they're being chased. That's where the, the shots are coming from and pounding into the ground here beside them. Opening up the book inside front cover is a subscription is a uh, well it's a subscription advert for Alien Worlds number 1. I don't believe we've seen an issue of Alien Worlds yet so it must be an upcoming thing. Into the story it is scripted, penciled, inked and lettered by Mr. Mike Grell with colors by Steve Olaf. I believe he goes on to found Oleoptics. Maybe Steve Olaf. Maybe this is before, or he's not using that name. But in my head, I seem to remember a connection. We are on Callisto, one of the satellites of Jupiter. And Torin and Tamara are, or Tamara, if you will, are skiing. I don't know if they're skiing on frozen water, if they're skiing on frozen methane, I thought. But either way, they're skiing. Now, it is, the atmosphere is bad enough that they are wearing some sort of breathing devices. And they're pretty cool. Covers just their nose and mouth, kind of like a small shield. And then it goes around to just under the ears. It terminates in tubes on either side. And the two tubes go and they connect in onto this spherical thing that is just kind of dangling right below their neck. So it's a very small, very compact breather, rebreather apparatus. Kind of cool. But they're talking, they're looking for something as they're skiing around and bantering back and forth a little bit. And then finally, Tamaris is there and points off the cliff, of course, down into the valley where we see the lost colony, all that remains of the Jupiter expedition. She goes on to tell Torin, and uh, by, uh, by, by the way, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Anyways, uh, she's telling us as the reader as well. This is the only colony that does not maintain regular contact with the Confederation of Planets. Within five years of initial colonization, all communications mysteriously ceased. It was nearly a century before we learned the tragic reason. And then it shifts into a narrator. So I don't know if Tamara is continuing to tell the story or if it's taken over by the omniscient narrator. But we see that this colony at some point early on was bombarded above ground by a meteor strike, an asteroid strike, something like that. Well, actually, it tells us it's a meteor shower. It destroyed everything that was above ground, uh, which included all of the adults working at the time. Below ground, we're told that there was a nursery facility 
for the young of the colony. They all survived. So this is a story meme whereby the adults have died and the children survived to raise and care for themselves. We're told the only survivors were children. Uh, with the aid of robot teachers, they survived to rebuild the colony. Without adult examples to guide them, they patterned their culture after stories in picture books. In particular, the tales of Earth's ancient seafaring barbarians, the Vikings. So, the colony is going to be very Viking-esque, I take it. So, Tamra and Torin need to access the colony. Because one of these amulets of Babidi-Bubidi uh, that she's looking for, I, I forget the name of it. Uh, not to be confused with Liberty Biberty, if you've seen those commercials. She knows that each of the rulers of the colonies throughout the solar system had one of these amulets. She is on a quest to gather all of the amulets together because they, they come together to make something or do something. I believe they, they make another shape, probably some kind of square or an orb that can be used to save Earth and for forestall or prevent its destruction at the hands by the hands of an expanding slash exploding sun. So she's attempting to gather these. She has several. She has three, I believe. She's looking for this one, which will be the fourth. So that leaves uh, four, leaves either set up, uh, another three or four total to be found. Earth doesn't have one. The Earth one was destroyed, apparently. Or so she says. But she has three. She's looking for number four. As they descend on the colony, uh, the terrain kind of fails beneath them and they fall. Torin uh, is the one that falls and in such a manner that he is discovered by, oh, look, Vikings, because that's all they grew up to know. So they grab him and, and take him as an able-bodied person, uh, an able-bodied something. Now, he looks, he, he, he's an earther. Okay, and I'm I, I, these words, um, but he looks exactly like they do. So I mean, they're they're all human. They just are from different places. Now we will run into and have run into some that have developed on some of these other planets, and they do look different. Actually, we run into some uh, gentlemen from the another of the moons of Jupiter, Titan, and they they look a little bit different than humans, although they are very very humanoid. So Torin has been taken, and he has been enslaved and put to work in the granite mines, I guess. They're, they're mining granite on um, Callisto. So I didn't know Callisto had granite in it. But anyways, they're cutting huge blocks that the Callistans then take via what appear to be Viking longships that float and sail through space. Again, the only literature they had at their disposal, supposedly, were storybooks, and so they attached themselves to the legends um, and actual histories of the Vikings, and that was their example for how to live their life, what to do, and everything. So, Viking longships sailing through space. A lot like Thor did there during a, a certain time of the Thor book at Marvel. He went on some expeditions in space, and they were just on Viking longships. So they're taking these big granite blocks and they're depositing them, as far as I can tell, on the planet Jupiter. But the blocks and what they're building, which turns out to be a pyramid or a, a, a ziggurat-style uh, construct, is so large that it has built up out of the clouds that we know that um, cover the surface 
surface of Jupiter. Um, don't know how far away the surface is. Don't even know that the surface is solid enough to support something of this size. But hey, it's it's a comic book. So, so they're building this big temple. This final block uh, that we see being laid is is it. it. The the temple is finished. So it doesn't come to a peak like a pyramid. So it's more like a ziggurat with a a flattened top. That's you know, it's it's a pyramid shaped up so far, and then it just looks like somewhere somebody just cut through and like removed the top so that it's nice and flat on the top instead of coming to a, a uh, peak. So this is Einar Bluetooth, who now has taken the forefront and is extolling that they are done. And there will be a big celebration and then we will dedicate the temple. Uh, but first, let's celebrate. So they're here celebrating. Even the slaves are, are celebrating, but they're celebrating off to the side, kind of in their pens. The pens for the slaves and all of the surviving Callistans are, are side by side, kind of like used to be um, back in the day where you would have one large house and the inhabitants and their animals would would be under the same roof, but they would be divided some way to keep the two apart. That's kind of the feeling that I get here, the animals being the slaves that the Callistans have. In the midst of their celebration, the doors to the outside slam open, which is interesting because they're still able to breathe with the door open, even though Torin and Tamra had to have masks. And actually, uh, the Vikings... Let's see, the Vikings, when they captured Torn, were they wearing masks? Yeah, they had masks on. So, something about the atmosphere doesn't work well, but yet the door can be slammed open here when Tamara comes in to rescue Torin. She appears as though uh, a Valkyrie or Valkyrie. She celebrates with them verbally, but then says that Father Odin craves one last boon of them to to complete this journey because the temple uh, or edifice that they have been building, they were building in honor of Odin. So she asks for this amulet, uh, the Bibbidi-Boobidi amulet, whatever they're called. And of course, to finish and to please Odin, to finish their uh, journey, uh, religious journey that they're on of, of celebrating Odin, and also to please him, Einar hands over the amulet, but then something happens, um, a trick blasphemy, but before the precious amulet can change hands, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what happens here, Torin does something, maybe Torin and one of the other slaves, it looks like, sort of gets into a scuffle, although I can't really tell. And Torin has his sword, so they didn't they didn't de-weapon him either when they captured him. Hmm. But anyways, it's it's found uh, by Einar that Tamra is not a Valkyrie, and so the the jig, if you will, is up. Torin and Tamra flee uh, now. All of a sudden, well, no, uh, setting things up, Sam. Uh, Torin's little mechanical AI uh, monkey creature that he's been running with lets him know that this is not something funky uh, going on when Tamra appears, that it's Tamra and they're planning to get him loose and everything kind of fills him in on the plan. Um, maybe seeing the little robot monkey throws it off. I don't know. I can't really tell what it is. But anyways, now they're on the run. Torin, Sam, and Tamra with the amulet. So the, the goal was achieved. 
And so they're trying to run back to their ship when all of a sudden the flagship of the Titan fleet, a huge vessel, appears over the horizon and starts taking out all of the Callistans in huge, you know, Titan flagship. It's, they call the ship a juggernaut, but that's just, I think, alluding to the size. So the cannons of that ship are firing on these Callistans as they're chasing Torin and Tamra and just tearing them up, of course. Ultimately, they do make their ship, and their ship has a name, which I forget. Let's see if I can find it. The Bowsprit, B-O-W-S-P-R-I-T, Bowsprit. They landed, I guess, it several valleys away, and then they were skiing, looking around, and found the colony. So it's it's on Callista somewhere over that way, let's say, you know. So they make the ship, but no sooner do they make the ship that the ground troops for the Titans find them, uh, finish killing off whatever Callistans are on the surface, chasing Torin and Tamra, capture the rest who give up, capture everybody actually that they found, and this includes Torin and Tamra. So now they're taken to the Titan ship where Krexor, Lord of Titan, is here. And he's a very large, thick man and very grayish of tone, skin tone. I don't know if that means he is supposed to be uh, a black-skinned gentleman or if they truly mean that he is this grayish off-tone. People of non-white consistencies at this time were not necessarily colored the most accurately. So depending on what your takeaway is, it's not as clearly done then, uh, partially because they didn't care, really, to be honest, um, as different skin tones are uh, taken care of and, and passed on now. You know, it, it folks take much more care to not make black people look gray or brown, to not make Oriental people or East Asian people look yellow or, you know, I mean, so, yeah. Uh, but anyways, big, thick dude riding some kind of anti-grav uh, sled here in the shape of like a circle. So he's just standing on this platform, hovering above them menacingly. Uh, grayish skin tone, very broad features. He's very a very squat, thick man. Grabs up Tamara when he sees that she is wearing amulets similar to the amulets that he has. He is aware of the story of all of the amulets being put together and having great power as well. So he notices that Tamara has several. Grabs her up. Torin jumps at him to stop, but he just swats Torin away. And Krexor grabs Tamara's amulets. So now she has three. He apparently has three as well, which she notices a little early on here. You can see in one panel, he's wearing some kind of armor. And as almost like decorations on the armor under his chin are the three amulets he has. So that's a total of six amulets now, all right here together. So he grabs up Tamara's amulets and as he's gloating and telling what he's going to do to her and what he's going to do to Torin since he uh, deigned to try to interfere and, and what he's going to do to the Callistans and what, you know, just extolling how he is superior, there's suddenly a large laser blast that strikes him in the chest and kills him. And then it starts picking off the other Titan soldiers as well, but only them. And this large blast, it was almost as, as wide as. Krexor's body is, um, huge amounts of energy and being very pinpointly executed. So 
automatically Torin and Tamra are like, uh, who can shoot chip weapons that precisely? And it turns out that it's Sam on the bowsprit that has come to rescue them. So once again, Torin and Tamra uh, escape. They run to the bowsprit. This time, Tamra has the other three amulets uh, as well as hers. So she now is in possession of six of the amulets. And um, like I said, there's nine. There's nine planets. Two of the planets are gone. Earth's amulet has been destroyed. So that would leave six amulets. So now she has all that are that are extant. Torn and Tamara run. But they don't run away. They turn to try to help the Callistans fight against this huge Titan ship. The Callistans uh, start attacking also. Uh, again, it's it's interesting to see these panels drawn. The huge Titan spaceship looks like, at this point, uh, in my, not now now, but at the point that I would have been reading the book in the early 80s, uh, it looks like every sci-fi spaceship that you've seen. I mean, it definitely looked like a spaceship. Now, the bowsprit that Torin and, and Tamara are on look a little bit less. It, it looks kind of spaceshipy, but it can uh, use a huge solar sail that right now they have packed away. But So it, it looks like this combination between ocean and spacefaring kind of thing. And then you have the Viking longboats, which have nothing about them that looks like spacefaring, they definitely look seafaring, like the ships they're patterned after. So it's it's kind of funny to see two or three different um, ideologies, perhaps, of what spaceships could be like, all, all in the same panels. I, I like what Grell did there by showing that. So we're, we're going back and forth, uh, Tamra and Torin, about we should leave. No, we need to help these people back and forth. With Farat, uh, they've taken Farat, who was the slave that fixated on Torin as far as trying to help him acclimate to you know what he needed to do to stay out of trouble and all this stuff when Torin was first captured by the Callistans. So... Ferrat has managed to hang on with Torn and Tamara as they've run back and forth. He's now on the bowsprit. So we have these three humans, and then we have Sam, the little cybernetic uh, monkey with them. Using the bowsprit and the Viking longships, they manage to destroy the large Titan uh, juggernaut ship. They fly off uh, the, the mission complete immediately, but they definitely want to get away from the Callistans because the Callistans probably would just turn right back around and capture them, right? So they get away, and the decision is made now that uh, they have all six amulets to head back home, uh, which is to Earth. Uh, let's see. I turn the page here. Let me turn back. And, yeah, doesn't tell us anything. So the next page is a... Grew the Wanderer advert coming soon from Sergio Aragonis. Subscribe today. And then lo and behold, we do have a mini Grew story here. It's scripted, penciled, and inked by Mr. Sergio Aragonis with co-plot and dialogue nods to Mike Avanier. Mike? Mark. Mark Avanier, excuse me. So, Grew is wondering. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen Grew, he is kind of wearing barbarian togs, have you? No gauntlets, but he does have a couple really gnarly bracelets on. No pants or shoes, socks, nothing like that. A tunic with a, a waist belt, 
a headband. The funny thing about Gru is he looks about as healthy as... No, I, I, I won't say that. He looks quasi like a mid-level sumo wrestler. He's he's very thick, not overly barbarian-looking. You know, in, in my mind, he, he lives a pretty decent barbarian life. He, he eats well, at the very least. Um, never misses arm day. And has never seen a leg day in his life. So that hopefully that gives you kind of a picture. Strapped to his back are a couple katanas by the looks of them. And whenever he pulls them out and wields them, they continue to be drawn by Mr. Aragonis like katanas. So uh, he's got a pair of those strapped to his back. And that's all. The swords, the two bracelets, and the tunic and headband that he traditionally wears. That's, that's all he's got on. So he's wandering around. He says, uh-oh, looks like I picked the wrong village to visit. This one's been destroyed. And we see here in the distance that, yeah, there's rubble and smoking and people gathered, you know, unto mourning kind of groups. He walks on into town and says, uh, strange, things are still smoldering. It must have just happened. But I see no dead soldiers. Next panel. Or live ones, for that matter. Some powerful army must have laid waste to this town. Some savage, barbaric horde. And he proceeds on into the village and says, Ho, villagers, I am Gru, the freelance nomad. What army has reduced your town to this rubble? And an old lady comes up and says, No army. It was the Krakora, the most horrible creature in the world. Every time it gets thirsty, it crashes right through our village to reach the lake. And then it starts, uh, they, they start, as Gru proceeds to move through the village, he encounters people with other aspects of the tale. Saves one of the villagers in a, in a humorous, um, couple of panels, a, a timber that he's leaning against starts to fall down onto him, and Gru catches it and pushes it back in place, all the while being told by these villagers what has happened, and then they could use some help. And then they start pumping up Gru to help them, first by plying him with a huge feast, which, of course, you know that he needs because of his body shape, and keep plying and pumping him up with food and uh word of a reward and everything like that until finally he decides he's going to go out and kill the Krakora for them. He's walking through a bamboo forest now and suddenly a huge monster face pops through one section here behind him and scares him. Then we see the monster and it's a really freaky looking lizard with no tail and huge teeth gaping maw kind of thing. I must get up to higher ground so I will have room to swing my swords. Then Gru strikes as he's backing up through the bamboo forest as this uh, lizardy monster is advancing on him. He breaks through and runs up the hill. Ah, this is better. Now Gru does what Gru does best. And he's dual-wielding the swords. He attacks the creature, one with a left-to-right swipe that cuts its head off, and one with an overhead that cuts that head into two pieces. So now, in essence, we have multiple pieces of beast head flying everywhere. The creature collapses. Gru sheathes his sword, and he's leaning, he point down on one, and he's thinking, phew, and now Gru will, huh? And the sword just pushes right into the ground, and he thinks, this is the softest ground I've ever, and then we hear Ursi rumble, and he finishes his thought, seen, as he grasps his sword and starts to pull it out. Next panel, we see that the hill that he went up and the soft ground that he has tread upon is, in fact, the belly of the real Krakora that turns and starts to attack him, and he runs off. 
in the final uh, couple panels here, the first, back in the village, one question hangs heavy on the townsperson's mind, on a townsperson's mind. Do you think we should have told Gru about the Krakora's baby brother, dude says, and his wife turns to him and says, somehow I have a hunch he knows, as it's pointing back across and you see out the window, the huge creature in the distance chasing Gru, who is running through the town at the house. Scroll here at the end says, moral, look before you leap or never count your Krakoras before they're catched. P.S. Watch for the further adventures of Gru in his own book, any day now. Final page is a split page ad of Kirby product, Silver Star, and Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. You can subscribe to both today. Uh, six issues of each is five fifty, and so that would give you twelve issues uh, for eleven bucks between the two of them. Inside back cover, Shambling Your Way This Fall, Twisted Tales number one, high quality white. Baxter Paper, written and edited by Bruce Jones. Art by Richard Corbin, Brett Blevins, Tim Conrad, Alfred Akala. Tales of Terror with a Modern Slant. 32 pages bi-monthly. And here's a subscription ad for it. $9 for six issues. The Silver Star Captain Victory advert was in full color. This, for Twisted Tales, is in black and white on the inside back cover. Outside back cover, it tells us coming in 1983 from Pacific Comics, Michael Moore Cox Elric of Melnibone. Thank you, Mr. Stephen Orr. Uh, for my whole life, I've pronounced that Melnibone because I've never heard anybody pronounce it. And uh, so I'll take Stephen's call that it is called Melnibone or pronounced Melnibone. An all-new adaptation by Roy Thomas, P. Craig Russell, and Michael Gilbert. Moorcock's classic hero, the entire novel adapted in six stunning comic books. Watch for it, we're told. All right. So that is Star Slayer, Log of the Jolly Roger 5, that came out in August of 1982. The other book I'm looking at is the previously mentioned Twisted Tales issue number one for a buck fifty. Now, between the two books, you can tell that the cover is a little bit uh, thicker bond and that the inside pages are definitely thicker bond for this book than they are for most of Pacific Comics books, uh, including the Star Slayer issue I was just looking at. Front cover is a um, full-color advert, or not an advert, a full-color illustration by, let me look here, Mr. Bruce Jones. He penciled it and inked and colored by Richard Corbin. The two of them working in conjunction signed the piece Joko, J-O-C-O, which I guess is Jones and Corbin combined. Um, and it's it's just a half-page illustration. Huge logo, Twisted Tales, and I, I like the way that's designed. Number one, it tells us. But the half-page is a young lady uh, who is barely dressed in a LBD. That would be a little blue dress. Um, she seems to be rather frightened um, and it's, it's showing in perhaps a sexual manner in her chesticles here. Uh, the dress that she's worn has been, is being torn by the zombies that she is holding back. She's leaning against the door of a house and they're coming through the window beside it, pushing the door, coming through the door. So you see arms and hands reaching and grasping at her and everything. Her dress is torn way up her thighs. So it's a, uh, meant to be a rather frighteningly titillating piece by Mr. Jones and Corbin. 
inside front cover and it continues on the inside back cover is an editorial by Mr. Bruce Jones. Uh, now, it's my understanding that this book was completely under the purview of Bruce Jones. He did everything contacted the people, handled getting the material in, handled editing the material, putting it together, everything like that. In essence, he was the packager of this, and then he sold this product to Pacific Comics. That is the the style of the relationship. Um, I had no idea of, of that until I started reading Tomorrow's Pacific Companion, which just came out a month ago, maybe, more or less. So good information there about Pacific Comics if you're interested. Alrighty, so we have four tales in here. Uh, the first two are eight pages each. The third and fourth are seven pages each. All four are written by Bruce Jones. They are penciled, inked, colored, and lettered by other individuals, but uh, Bruce does come in with a helping hand on a couple of occasions to handle some of those other jobs. So this very first story is scripted by Jones, penciled, inked, and lettered by Corbin, and colored by Steve Olaf. Um, also, something I think I have been really failing to mention as I've been covering these Pacific books is if they're reprinted anywhere, and if so, where you can find them. The Star Slayer story that I just went over uh, can be found in the acclaimed Valiant 1995 Star Slayer series, issue number six, and reprinted again in the Dark Horse Star Slayer book from 2017. The Gru story that I talked about can be found in the Gru Chronicles, which came out, uh, issue number two, which came out from Marvel in 1989. All four of these Twisted Tales stories, according to the Grand Comic Database, have never been, well, have never been reprinted in English. The first story was reprinted in a couple countries whose, I'm sorry, flags I, I don't recognize, if you are familiar with how Grand Comics does things. So, two foreign reproductions. I apologize, I don't recognize where they are. I'm going to say maybe Spain and Italy, but I'm not sure of that. Otherwise, no English reprints of any of this material. So, in the first story, we're introduced to Oscar Phelps. Now, Mr. Phelps is a collections agent. And he's been going around the coast of California, uh, which is where he's based, trying to get money owed his clients. But Mr. Phelps suffers from migraines, and the migraines are fueled by the Santa Anas that the coast, this particular part of the coast of California is subject to. Uh, variously, there, the, the winds are called the Viento de Fuego or the Santana Diablo or the Santa Anas, as we in English call them. And I apologize if my Spanish uh, e Mexican pronunciation is poor. Um, I am uh, very Caucasian, uh, so I, I don't have much practice with those. But he is here suffering uh, from his migraine, trying to, to tamp it down a little bit so he can do his job. He does his collections in person, apparently. So he took a second and standing here on the on the cliffs overlooking the ocean, and he's walking back up to his car and passes a crab. Now, the first couple – well, on and off throughout this story, there is much more text than there is art. Uh, Bruce had a whole lot that he wanted to say and left Richard Corbin uh, in this story with very little room to art in. But there is some. First, Oscar uh, – not for, but the first house that we see Oscar go up to is a woman, 
there's two kids outside and she's got a smaller one in her hands using a very Angloed, um, English speaking, non native accents on here. I would assume that it's meant that she is uh, Central or South American languages, uh, Spanish, perhaps Portuguese, um, some of the other languages. I, again, I, I am just terminally Caucasian, so I'm not as familiar with things outside my country to know what other languages are spoken in other Central and South American countries. I do know that Portuguese is spoken in Brazil. Um, I believe that Mexican is spoken in Mexico. Uh, it's it's a, an offshoot of Spanish, I believe, again. Beyond that, I, I'm, I'm not sure. There's probably some French and actual genuine Spanish spoken elsewhere. But this, this is a, a broken English of an, another Central or South American accent that this woman is speaking in. So it's uh, something like, I told the man on the phone, we got no money. You go away. Leave us alone. Uh, and, and I'm sure I'm not doing her accent justice, much less what it's supposed to be. So that's an example of the Angloed representation of that accent. Uh, so she is saying that, that she doesn't have money. She's arguing with them. The, the children are screaming and crying. She has a dog uh, that is barking outside. And, and all of this, along with... Phelps's migraines just is too much, and he just runs away screaming, shut up, shut up, runs to his car and just vomits from all of it. I suspect also he's not the happiest with his job itself, so that's taking a toll on him. He jumps in the car and moves on to his next collection point, and as he's driving, he passes a young lady in a green dress, blonde hair, rather attractive, asks her if she needs a ride somewhere, and she says yes, tells where she lives, and Oscar's like, oh, well, I was just coming calling on you to collect the debt. And she's like, oh, gee, how lucky. And so they're going back and forth in the car. At one point here, um, the narrator tells us, so young, so, or actually, this is Oscar's thinking, so young, so lovely, so unmarried. Play it cool, Phelps. You might have something here. Uh, perhaps you'd like to talk about them. Them being, let's see, hardships of late, some severe personal problems, she says, that she has been having. She says, no, no, I'm, it's so, couldn't you just give me some time? I'd be so grateful. And he thinks, so grateful. It's the word you've been waiting to hear. And he reaches over and starts stroking her leg, pushing her dress up. Well, perhaps we could arrange something. You say your house is nearby? Just down the road. But I, there's there's something you should know. I, I've had... She whispers the word in your ear shyly. This is the omniscient narrator. You laugh. Adolescent memories of itching pain flaring in your mind. She says, it's, it's, it's been terrible. I'm so ashamed. He says, ha, heck, that's nothing to get upset about. Lots of folks have been through that. She says, they have? And Phelps is thinking, poor kid. She doesn't even know how to take care of herself. Lord, these ignorant small town folk, which is... Also a mentality that we saw that he had in speaking to the first woman. He says, you you said you got rid of them, right? She says, they're gone for now, but they always come back. I'm so embarrassed, giving you an indication of what they have been talking about. So they proceed to her house. They go inside. He notices uh, the smell like seaweed. She said, it's the children. They fill the house with it. <sighs> I can't have any visitors anymore since the children... Well, Come here, Marie. Do, do you have anything to drink? So she gets him something to drink, and he starts plying his um, gropey, sexy, he kisses her here on the neck. And then the next panel, he picks her up and carries her to the bed that she has. And 
Yeah, they do the deed. In the middle of the night, he wakes up and goes to the bathroom, and something's going on that causes him to flick on the light, and he sees this really funky-looking crab sitting here on the sink uh, with blood on the pincers and on this gaping mouth that it has. And then he raises his hand up to his face, and he sees that three of his fingers have been chewed off and screams, runs out, Marie, Marie. But as he runs out of the bathroom, he runs into the bedroom, which is now just completely taken over by crabs. He yells, Marie, and the crabs just bowl him over and start clipping him to to death. And we see on the final panel, he's laying here with blood all over the place. She's standing here naked, holding a crab up to her breast, saying, I told you to go. I told you. I told you what I had, mister. I told you. So that's the end of the first one. Second story. This is brought to us by Bruce Jones, penciled, inked, and lettered by Alfred Alcala, with colors on this one by Bruce Jones. And this one involves uh, Shannon Bannon, who is a camp counselor. And the uh, all-around get-it-done dude that works here at the camp, his name is Willie. But he is drawn goofily and disgustingly. He hits on Sharon. Sharon says, uh, no thanks. Ultimately, Sharon is introduced to Jeff Lowry, who is going to buy the camp and all the property. Well, Sharon falls for Jeff. And after some being put off, Jeff falls for Sharon. So they do the deed one night here in his car, and, and Willie finds out the next day and goes to her and says, Please, Miss Bannon, I know I'm not handsome like him, but I love you. I'd give anything I, I own just to touch you, to kiss you. And she says, Willie, stop it. Gag. Don't talk like that. Lord, uh, joke. The smell. So apparently Willie doesn't take care of himself. But he is in love with Sharon and has been telling her every chance that he gets. Finally, one day, Sharon is walking around uh, the camp and finds that Jeff is doing the deed with one of the other camp peoples here. She runs to Willie, uh, the only companionship that she has, apparently. She's so distraught that she decides to get married and, on the wedding night, puts him off uh, because of his smell, because of his hygiene, apparently. She then, after that, runs to Jeff's place because she's so upset. Yeah, kind of confused. Sharon is a little a little flighty, maybe. So now Jeff uh, helps Sharon with a plan. Sharon and Willie go out rowing on the lake. Every camp has a lake, don't they? Yeah. So they're rowing on the lake at night, full moon. She takes the paddle to the back of Willie's head, knocks him into the water, and leaves him in the lake to drown as she paddles back to shore. Sharon calls Jeff. The deed is done. We see that Jeff finally buys everything, um, finds out that the property itself actually was left to Willie, um, and Willie is now dead because it was his family that sold the property to the camp with the understanding that Willie could stay on and help. So the property is Willie's and Willie is dead, so now everything is in probate. Um, Jeff presents the marriage certificate between Sharon and Willie. And so now everything is in the process of going over to Sharon. And Sharon and Jeff, of course, now have this thing going. So Jeff will ultimately be able to get the property as he had originally intended. Well, as they're coming back from the uh, legal proceedings, finally turning everything over to her, there is this 
creature, the skeleton that has risen uh, from the very first panel we saw. Well, the very first page. There were three panels. Uh, a person in this pile of ooze at the bottom of the lake crawls up and and zombie, but it's an animated skeleton with no flesh on it. And it is now standing in the road. The car veers off and crashes. The skeleton grabs Jeff, drags him into the lake and drowns him. Sharon runs away. She runs to Willie's house because it's the closest. But she finds that the bed, the sheets have been turned down. And so with everything that's happened and watching Jeff die in the accident, knowing that she killed Willie and everything, she she breaks. She has a psychotic break. Sharon sat down heavily on Willie's lumpy mattress. Her eyes were wide and glazed. And the way that the drawing is, half of her face is illuminated and the other half is like red, uh, like a, a lack of light, not complete darkness, but just less light on that side. And so it, she almost resembles the two-faced character from the Batman mythos. And she says, waiting for me, <laughs> waiting for me to return. She sat quietly, staring into space. There was a movement outside the door. <laughs> Waiting for what he always wanted, she says. And it keeps going like that until finally he comes in to have sex with her because um, the wedding night she refused his advances. And the last panel, the narrator tells us, all is suddenly still in the, si in the tiny cabin. Then a rusty squeaking sound, followed by a final agonizing scream. Then silence, once again forever. So apparently Willie uh, mounted the young lady here and killed her. I'd say choked her out. Might have stabbed her. I don't know. But all right. Third story. Um, I'm sorry. The first story was entitled Infected with the Crabs, right? Okay. Uh, the second story, Out of His Depth, uh, which is, is the the pond, uh, the lake down and then coming up the skeleton depth there. Okay. I get it. I get it. A Walk in the Woods. Uh, yep, I get this one too. This is scripted by Bruce Jones, penciled, inked, and lettered by Brett Blevins, and colored by Bruce Jones. Let's see, how long am I going here? Okay, that's not too bad. So this one, we are introduced to Alice and John, uh, a.k.a. Jack Benson. They're driving around in Germany on a vacation, and, and they've just had no end of troubles. Uh, the, the final trouble that we see is the car that they're touring around and giving out. So they start walking around in the woods there, and they head to this closest cabin to call for whatever, help a tow truck, you know, what, whatever they need to do. So they go to the cabin, and this scraggly, scrungy-looking creature um, – I'll say because of the way the story progresses that it's a female, a, a woman, um, invites him in. And as they're walking around, Jack uh, or, or John, I should say, uh, nay, Jack, we don't find out that he goes by Jack until the very end of the story. And you'll see why. So uh, John is walking around and steps into a huge animal uh, trap, like a like a, a bear trap, coyote trap, something like that. Snapshot. And of course, he, he just goes the heck off. His wife grabs an axe, and I thought that she was going to cut his leg off to get him out, but she used it to pry open the trap, apparently, because he still has his leg. Now, the leg is kind of beat up, but um, he, he tells his wife, Alice, she set that trap on purpose, and Alice says, what? 
He says, don't you see this gingerbread house, the wandering couple, and now the trap? She really is a witch, honey. This really is a fairy tale. I can feel it. And the witch starts approaching them, having gone over to her stove, and say, couldn't find no key. <laughs> How about some chocolate eclairs and cherry tarts? So she's trying to feed them to fatten them up, because this is the witch from, uh, dare we say, Hansel and Gretel, which I think was a German fairy tale. They're in the woods of Germany. So I think a lot of those fairy tales, actually, uh, that we are familiar with were German. And if you ever read them as they were originally written, man, they are dark. Not at all like the anglicized versions that we're familiar with. Whew, they're dark. Uh, but John jumps out the window, runs away. Alice runs with him. She was a witch, damn it. She was a witch. Didn't you see the size of that oven? A man could fit in there, he's telling her as they're running away. They run to another house. Now what, he says. Alice takes the lead. If it's another witch, at least let's find her phone this time. So they go into the house. Um, I guess after knocking and calling and whatever, the door's unlocked. They go in. Oh, lo and behold, here is a huge table, and there are bowls of something on there. And she says it's porridge. She starts tasting them because she's hungry. In the midst of this, a huge bear jumps out, and it's going to get her growl, it says. But... John has found uh, somewhere in the cabin here a shotgun and shoots the bear. Grabs her by the hand and runs off. They're out traipsing around in the woods at night now, and she starts to get a little cold. And John hands her a uh, cloak that he found hanging on the door in the the bear uh, cabin there. He, here, put this on. It'll keep you warm. She says, what, what are you staring at? And then <laughs> John realizes that cloak. That red hood, it's just like, she says, oh, come on, John, just because I put on a red hooded cloak, you think that makes me Little Red Riding Hood? <laughs> You're too much. And I suppose this is Grandma's house. Really, I've had enough of this. She walks up to the next house here, and he says, Alice, don't go near it. Please, wait, honey. And they go inside, and sure enough, there's an old lady sitting in bed in all her gram Grammy, Grammy clothes. So Alice says that she will stay, and she essentially shoves John out the door and says, Go get help. I'll stay here with the old lady. I'll keep her company. I'll be safe here. Guan. So he runs off. Uh, Grandma and Alice are talking here. We look outside, and we see that there is a full moon, Alice notices. And then Grandma, as she's talking, she says, Hand me my glasses, will you, Alice? The better to see you with, my dear. You left the gun by the door, Alice, but never mind. The bullets probably weren't silver anyway. And each word balloon that those words are in, the the balloon changes from a nice smooth human to a gravelly, uh, werewolfy kind of tone. Uh, we, we don't know. We never see her. John does make it into town, and he finds someone to help. Uh, Jill Henrik says that she will help them. But first, she needs to go up to the top of this hill and get some water for dinner. Uh, after that, I'll, I'll take you you know, back to my house, and, and you can use the phone. So our final panel here is Jill saying, incidentally, watch your step on this hill, loose rocks. And John, nay, Jack Benson says, person could break his head open. So it's uh, an image of Jack and Jill walking up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Yeah. Okay. Next page is a full page, uh, full color ad for El Elric of Mel Nibine. A subscription for it is $9 for six issues. 
The final story, written by Bruce Jones, penciled and inked by Tim Conrad, colored by Steve Olaf, and lettered by Carrie McCarthy. All Hallows, which is, you know, we, we just passed Halloween, so this is pretty apropos. A young gentleman, a, a younger gentleman, is walking around wearing a Red Devil costume, top and bottom. Uh, the hood pulled over has little horns on it. And you can tell by the costume that it is much smaller than this larger of girth individual should be wearing. He's pouring out and peeking out from all around. He's walking through town and says, this is dumb, Jack. This is super dumb. This is ultra incredibly dumb. And Jack is waiting here, uh, leaning against a tree, waiting for him in some sort of outfit with a fedora and looks like a cane. You look like a tomato with legs, Bradshaw. So is going... uh, after the, all the dumb comments, uh, Jack says, um, so it's going to school, but we still do that every year. I'm too old for this, says Binky. Uh, that's his name, the narrator tells us. Binky Bradshaw. And they're on Cimarron Street. I look like a fool in this costume. All the girls will notice my reputation will notice my reputation will be ruined. And Jack says, what reputation? Binky goes on, we're going to be seniors next year, Jack. Seniors. What will people think? So there we go. So they're 17, 18-year-olds, I would imagine, seniors in high school. So they're walking through town here, and next they meet up with Bobby Ribestein, or no, Ribestein, wearing a skeleton costume in much the same way as Binky's devil costume is. So they're all getting together to go trick-or-treating. And they stop at one house and knock on the door, trick or treat. And an old woman opens the door and says, oh, oh my gosh, what do you want of me? And Binky says, just a candy bar, Miss Thompson, you know, trick or treat and all. She yells, go away. I don't have anything. And he starts, but I only want, leave me alone. I tell you, I'm innocent. It's none of my affair. And as they're leaving the house, uh, Binky's saying, crazy old broad, I only wanted some candy. And Jack finishes, what do you expect, you jerk? It's not on the route. You're probably scared her half to death. So they keep walking, and they walk by a cemetery, and they pick up the last member of their foursome, Skeeter. And Skeeter is dressed as a, a really uh, low-rent ghost, basically just a sheet draped over him. Um, okay, we're all together. Let's get some grub. Where do we start? Don't you know by now, Bradshaw? So the four of them go to this uh, the Kittner's place. And they frighten her, and she gives them what she has, which doesn't look like candy. It looks like actual dinner food. No, donuts. She has donuts that she gave them. Uh, So then they go to the next house, uh, the Boatner's. And uh, I I have some cake in the kitchen, boys. Would you prefer that? And Binky says, nah, we ain't got time. Come on, fellas. As he is, he handed them something, uh, which he didn't know if they would like or not. So he said, well, I have some other stuff. So... First, the Kittner's place, and then the Boatner's. Then they wind up at the Collins' house, where she does have candy, and she's given them candy, but her husband rushes out and says, Monsters, you think you can terrorize the whole neighborhood, do you? You think you can do this to us every year? She says, Ralph, no. He was our only son, our only boy. I won't let you hurt the others. I won't let you. Binky says, Come on, let's get out of here. First the Smiths, then the Millers, then the Kittner's, then the Boatner's. Last year it was me. Who's next, huh? When will you stop this? Is um, Mr. Collins yelling at them as they're leaving. When we're through, Mr. Collins, says Jack. So they go into the Hathaway house. And having none of it, Mrs. Hathaway is being talked to here. But the husband runs out. 
He says, here, here he is, boys, take him. And she says, no, Paul, don't let them have him. Oh, God, it's no good, Martha. They'll just keep coming back. They'll follow us everywhere. You know what happened when the others resisted. So it is the four of them, Binky, Jack, Bobby, and Skeeter. And now they have young Eddie Hathaway with them. And they they all go up to this, and they're kind of manhandling, dragging Eddie, by the way. He doesn't want to participate. And they go to this all old burned-out house, and Skeeter removes his um, sheet. And you see that he is this burnt-up, zombie-looking thing. Next panel is Jack pouring gasoline on an Eddie Hathaway that has been bound and forced to his knees. And then he's lit on fire. The four of them leave him and the house here to continue burning. And as they're walking back away from it, Binky says, is that it? Can I throw away this dumb costume now? And Bobby says, you going home now, Jack? Jack says, nah, I'm going to walk Skeeter back to the gate first. And as they, as uh, Jack leaves the cemetery, we see he's outside the cemetery. Skeeter's inside, back with his ghost costume on. And Jack tells him, Slong, Skeeter, get some rest now, you hear? You get some rest. And um, if it wasn't evident in those sections that I did read, apparently what happened in the past is a group of boys did something similar to Skeeter that it got out of hand and, and Skeeter was killed. So now Skeeter's friends, Binky, Jack, and Bobby, have been going through over the years doing the same things to the group that did this to Skeeter. And Eddie Hathaway was the last member of that group. And so uh, that was that's, that's the end of that. So uh, the inside, uh, let's see, the last comic page is an advert for subscriptions for Captain Victory, Silver Star, Gru the Wanderer, Elric of Melnibide, Twisted Tales, and Alien Worlds. All the books that we've heard of, nothing, nothing new yet. Uh, Three-quarter page ad for Twisted Tales, uh, which is interesting because they were included in the subscription over here on the left. But on the right here is their own subscription. The bottom third of the page is the rest of the Bruce Jones editorial that started on the inside front cover. And then the back is an Alien Worlds full-color ad. Uh, subscribe now. High-quality white Baxter paper written and edited by Bruce Jones. Alien Worlds is also going to be offered in the same manner that Twisted Tales was by Bruce Jones to Pacific Comics. Uh, featuring a new lineup of top artistic talents, every issue, science fiction stories of the future. So Alien Worlds will be science fiction. Twisted Tales will be horror, packaged by Bruce Jones. That I think uh, is everything for the Pacific Comics aspect of this issue. The only other thing that I need to tell you is that, uh, well, a couple things. This is the final Pacific Comics episode of this current season for Newsprint Commando. We're not going anywhere. This is just the final month of 1982. So the next Pacific Comics episode will start with January 1983 and proceed as we have. The final episode of this season will be Red Fox number seven, still from Harrier Comics. Uh, it moves on to another company here rather shortly after issue number seven. But that is the next Newsprint Commando episode, Red Fox number seven. Talk to you guys next time about that. Ciao.